0: Good morning. You have a Bible. Open it up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 12 through 18. Philippians 2, 12 through 18. I told you guys a couple of weeks ago about the fact that over the break we got a puppy. Uh, after several years, actually really my whole adult life of resisting getting a dog, I was finally talked into the dog uh, by my family. Uh, I'm well outnumbered. There is uh, me and my son, who's our youngest child and can't really talk yet, and then my wife and the two uh, girls. And so uh, they convinced us to get a puppy. So we got a little beagle puppy named Penelope. She's living in our house. I know, it's incredibly uh, cute. And I showed a picture of her a couple of weeks ago. Well, after I talked about that and just kind of this transformation That I've had in my own life. A young lady came up to talk to me to tell me that over the Christmas break her dad had had the same experience. Now uh, she is in college. I actually knew her dad when I was in college. He was one of my pastors here at the church and still lives here and works here in the community and he had gotten a puppy, not, not a puppy actually, two puppies right before Christmas. And she said all growing up My dad would never let us get a dog, but he finally caved when the neighbors found a couple of dogs and said he had to have something to replace the kids who were now out of the house. And so he got two dogs, and uh, it just so happened that that same week, I unexpectedly had lunch with him, uh, Jeff. And so we're sitting there, we eat lunch, and toward the end of lunch, I say, by the way, your daughter told me that you got a couple of dogs. And he goes, oh, yeah, oh, man, look at this. And he pulls out his phone. And he has pictures of his dogs on the phone. He starts showing me pictures of the dogs and talking about them, explaining them to me. And then he goes, you need to bring your dog over to my house and we'll have like a doggy play date with the dogs. Okay, now... I'm sitting here and I'm having this conversation and I got back in the car and I thought, what's happened to me? Right? What uh, sort of alternative universe have I entered into? And I actually texted that to my wife. I said, you'll never believe I was standing there talking about dogs, looking at pictures, setting up play dates for the dog. And this never would have happened just three or four months ago. That's uh, a big transformation, both for me as well as for Jeff, two guys who previously were not dog people who now are. And it's affected not only the way that we think and speak, but the way that we act as well. And every so often, you have those sort of events in your life, don't you? You have sort of transformative events that change the way that you think, the way you uh, speak, even the things that you do, the way that you act. For those of you that go to A&M, this happened when you decided to become an Aggie and you came down here and you perhaps went to fish camp or something like it, right? And you went through a transformation. You learned all of the yells and all of the traditions and you go back home and your family, especially if they're not Aggies, they don't recognize you anymore. You've changed, you've transformed and it changes the way that you think and act and speak. As we look at the book of Philippians, what we've seen is that that transformation should be the most apparent, that sort of transformation should be the most apparent in those who have come to know Jesus Christ. In those of us who've come to know what Jesus has done for us, that he has died and he has risen again to pay the penalty for our sin and to provide us with eternal life if we believe. For those who have believed in that, the Holy Spirit now lives in your heart and empowers you to do God's will. And so you and I ought to be experiencing a transformation in our character, in the way that we speak, in the way that we think, the way that we act. That is the normal Christian life. Now, clearly, in some instances, there are believers who do not progress continuously to know Jesus better, but that's the normal Christian life. And as Paul has walked us uh, through his thought process in this book, remember the, the main theme of the book of Philippians has been orienting your life around the gospel, investing in those things that will last forever, knowing Jesus Christ and helping others to know him And that's been the essence of the book of Philippians. And last week, we looked at one of the most famous passages in the whole New Testament, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where Paul walks through the amazing humility of Jesus Christ that he came from heaven. He humbled himself to become a man, and then he humbled himself even further to the point of death and even death on a cross, and then God highly exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we talked about how that ought to motivate you and me to imitate him. If you know him, you are called to follow him. As we continue in our passage this week, 2.12-18, through 18, Paul's going to take this description of what Jesus has done and he's going to draw out the implications of that. If Jesus has done this for you, which in fact he has, then you are called to work that out in your life, to continue to grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. If you are stagnant, if you are not growing, if you are not investing in the word of God and sharing the gospel, something's gone wrong. Something's not the way it ought to be. doesn't necessarily mean that you don't know him, but it might mean that you are failing on a day-to-day basis to work out the implications of your salvation in your life. And that's what Philippians 2, 12 to 18 is about and is going to challenge us to do. And as we start looking at this passage, the question to ask yourself is this, am I growing or am I stagnant? When you look back over the last year or two or three of your life, Do you know Jesus better now than you did last year or the year before? Are you taking active steps to grow? Or does your spiritual life consist primarily of the fact that you had an experience when you were a child and now you sit here each Sunday and remain in the same place? If so, something's gone wrong in your heart and your mind. You're not listening to the voice of the Spirit as He's calling you to grow. And so Paul is going to challenge us to continue to walk with Jesus more and more each day to imitate him so the world can see him. All right, so let's look at Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Paul begins with a command. The command is to work out your salvation. Look at, start in verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. All right, now this is an interesting passage because uh, many people have seen this and they've said, okay, he says, work out your salvation. And some people have interpreted that to mean you have to do something in order to earn eternal life. That you have to actually work for it. If there are certain works that aren't in your life, then you won't be saved. Uh, The reality is that's not at all what Paul is saying. And as you look throughout all of Paul's writings, it's very clear that eternal life is a free gift based on what Jesus has done, not based on what you or I have done. When we get to chapter 3, we'll see that very vividly. Paul says, I seek the righteousness that's not of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, apart from works of the law. Eternal life is a free gift. What Paul is saying here, though, uh, this Greek word has the idea of fleshing out the implications of your salvation in your life. And I think we sometimes trip up uh, on this word salvation because we're very accustomed to to talking about salvation as if it only means forgiveness from sins and not going to hell. In our culture, when we talk about salvation, that's usually what we mean in a Christian context, that I'll go to heaven when I die. Right, but words can have different meanings in different contexts. And the context here is critical. Right, uh, you're aware of this just from speaking English, right? The same word can have a different meaning depending on who's speaking and what the context is. If you hear the word trunk, it could mean the trunk of an elephant. It could mean a big box that you put your clothes in. It could mean the trunk of your car. It could mean a number of things. When my oldest daughter was just learning to talk, uh, she was about two, two and a half. She had this word, one syllable, Pa. And uh, pa meant a number of things, depending on the context. It could mean please. It could mean play. It could mean pair. It could mean pray. Right? And I could go on and on. There were about four or five different things that she would communicate. So if she came up and said, uh, maha papa, that meant, may I have a pair, please? Right? And so you would have to try to, deci- uh, to decipher what it was that she was saying. Right? Dad, da pa pa Da-da-pray with me? Play? You had to figure it out based on the other words surrounding it, and sometimes you would have to repeat back to her until you got it right, right? You'd say, play with you? No, no, no. Papa, pa. Play, please? No. Pray, please? Yes. All right, and then you would finally figure it out. Same word, context was critical. All right, same is true of the word salvation. As you look throughout the New Testament, you're going to see this same word used in a variety of different ways. It doesn't always just mean going to heaven when you die. Let me show you a few examples of ways this word can be used. All right, it can mean literally salvation from death. All right, when Peter is walking on the water, you remember Peter, it says, seeing the wind, Peter became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, Peter's not saying, uh, Jesus, send me to heaven, right? He's saying just the opposite here saying, get me out of the water, save me from dying. Same word for salvation in the Greek language. Another one, salvation from sickness. Uh, Jesus says to this woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you right after he's healed this woman from her disease. The idea is it's made you whole. It's saved you from your sickness. Go in peace. And it's used that way in a number of places, actually, to save you from sickness, to make you whole, complete. Uh, another way that we see it used, salvation from hell, the one we're most accustomed to. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live with him. First Thessalonians 5, 9 to 10. Keep going here, another one. Uh, future salvation, when Jesus comes back, not only going to heaven when we die, but when Jesus comes back and restores the world the way that it's supposed to be and we are saved, finally out of the death and sin and sickness of this world. So Romans 13, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. In other words, he's not saying that you're working somehow for your salvation and you're getting really close to getting it. Instead, what he's saying is the time where Jesus will come back, our salvation is getting closer and closer and closer. Right, and then one more, 1 Peter two two, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Right, Peter's talking about the practical outworking of salvation in your life. And I think that's what Philippians 2 is talking about here. When Paul says, work out your salvation, what he's saying is allow the fact that you have been saved— Allow the fact that Jesus died for you and rose again. Allow that to make a difference in your life. And he gives a couple of motivations. The first motivation is, he says, therefore. All right. And that therefore goes back to 2, 5 through 11. Because of what Jesus has done, that should motivate you to imitate him, to follow him, to become like him. And then he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the idea here is that for every believer, there's coming a day when you and I will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and we'll be evaluated. And If you've believed in Jesus, there's no question that you'll inherit eternal life, that you'll receive eternal life. But every believer will still be evaluated and either hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or be ashamed that we've not used our life to his glory. Paul says, I chase after the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We'll talk about that in chapter three. Paul says, there is a reward to be had for those who will work out their salvation with fear and trembling, meaning an appropriate sense of reverence and awe that one day I will stand at the throne of Jesus Christ and he'll evaluate what I've done. And then he goes on in verse 13 and he says something uh, really interesting. He says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, this is a really interesting uh, sort of side-by-side paradox here. He says, you work out your salvation, but it's God who works in you, both to will, in other words, to give you the desire to do his will and to work. And that seems strange, doesn't it? Is it me working? Is it God working? Is the process of becoming holy, is it me striving and being disciplined and working toward that goal? Or... Is it let go and let God? Which is it? The answer is both. As you look at the scripture. Now that seems like a contradiction, but you see this throughout Paul's writings. 1 Corinthians 15. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. Yet I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. All right, I worked, but it wasn't me working. It was the grace of God with me. Which is it, Paul? It's both. It's both. And the idea is this, that as you know Jesus Christ and his spirit lives within you, his spirit empowers you for service, but you are called to follow him, to know his word, to pray, to share the gospel, to be obedient. And as you're obedient, the the spirit of God moves through you. And there's this sort of partnership between you and the spirit of God as you seek to know him better. And you see that partnership all the way through the scripture. Think about it this way. How much of what you do day to day is your choice and how much of what you do day to day is determined by perhaps your genetics? Can you separate those things out? Uh, It used to be that I thought, you know, I pretty much make my own choices. The things I do, I do because I want to. Uh, And then one day I was talking to my dad. My dad was in our house And we were standing uh, in this sort of open doorway that we have in our house that goes between the living room and the kitchen. And I was leaning on one side of the doorway and I, I had my legs crossed like this and my arms crossed like this and I was leaning back against it and talking to my dad. And all of a sudden I looked over and my dad was doing the exact same thing on the other side. And I thought, which one of us decided to do this first? Did I choose to do this? Am I doing this because I've seen my dad do this? I don't really know. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Now I could stop, right? And I think I probably did. I probably stood up and kind of shook my hands out and thought, becoming uh, my parents, the older I get. I hear myself saying things to my kids that my parents said to me. The other day, kids were uh, fighting, arguing about something. and I think I said to one of them, Elizabeth, you let me worry about Abigail and you worry about Elizabeth. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I thought, that's Glenn Morton, right? <laughs> now, did I choose to say that? You bet. Was I also, in some sense, determined to say that by the family that I live in, the circumstances I'm in? Absolutely. And as we look at God's word, what we see is that there's this difficult-to-understand partnership between what we do and what God does. And God has allowed us, because we're created in his image, a certain degree of freedom, But then the Spirit of God moves through us, empowers us, so that it really can be said that God is at work in us. And it's not we who work. If you don't fully understand that, don't worry. You're in really good company. Nobody does. But what's clear from this passage is you and I are called to be obedient and then to rest upon the grace of God, to ask him for the strength and the power to do his will. And as we work out our salvation, we continue to remember it 's because of what Jesus has done for us that we want to serve him. The best way that you and I can honor him for what he 's done is to live out his values to imitate his character. I read just this past week that to raise a child today uh, costs somewhere around two hundred thousand dollars from the time they 're young until they go off to college and Uh, I don't know if that included college or not. I don't think it did. That was from zero to 18, somewhere around $200,000. Now, think about that. You want to pay your parents back? Get out your checkbook, baby, right? 200 grand. Can you do it? Anybody have it? No. I mean, some of you may, but I, I certainly don't. So what's the best way that you can honor all of the work that your parents have put into raising you and caring for you? Well, you can live out the values that they expect of you that they've trained into you. You can be a person of character and integrity and love. That's what Paul is saying. We work out our salvation not because we can pay Jesus back, not because we can earn what he's given, but instead because we are called now to honor who he is in a dark world so the world can see what Jesus is like. So Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God works in you. And then he gives a particular application of what it looks like to work out your salvation. And his application here is an interesting one. He says, work out your salvation. And then next he says, don't grumble or argue. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning or grumbling or complaining, depending on what translation you're looking at. And that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Of all the things he could say, he says, okay, you need to be like Jesus Christ. And here's how you do it. Don't argue or complain. That seems weird. There's a lot of other things he could have said, right? He could have said, don't kill people. Don't steal money. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Why does he zero in on grumbling and complaining as an application for how to be like Jesus? I think there's a couple of reasons. One, because we know that this church really struggled with grumbling and complaining. You're going to see an exhortation in chapter 4, two women in particular who cannot get along. He's written at length about unity, so this church really struggled with that. But the other reason is this, uh, grumbling and complaining is one of the primary evidences that I have not really grasped and I am not applying the grace of God in my life because when I'm discontent and I grumble and I argue, what that demonstrates is, God, I don't think you have given me enough And therefore, I'm going to reach out and try to grab things for myself, whether that's my rights, whether that's my own pleasure, whether that's my own money. And so I begin to steal or I begin to hurt others or I begin to lie or I begin to lust or whatever it is. And I grumble and complain because I'm discontent and I don't recognize God has given me eternity in Jesus Christ. God has given me everything I need and more in Jesus Christ. James chapter four says that the source of conflicts and quarrels is essentially you lust and you don't have. So you commit murder. You're envious, and so you steal, and you harm others. It starts in your heart. There's two words he uses here. One is grumbling. Grumbling literally means to kind of murmur under your breath, kind of, right? You've been in classes before when the professor walks in and he says, today we're going to have a pop quiz, and you hear that noise that follows it. Right? That's Grumbling. That's literally what this means. Arguing, that word arguing or disputing, the idea is you go back and forth about stuff that's probably not that significant. You argue about your rights. You argue about what matters to you instead of, like we talked about last week, sometimes being willing to set those things aside for the sake of God's glory. And and I don't know about you, but I'm guilty of this stuff all the time, and it shows a heart of ingratitude. I complain when it doesn't rain. I complain when it rains too much. I complain when it's hot. I complain when it's too cold. I complain when I have to take out the trash, do the dishes, uh, when the dog needs to go out again. Right? When my kids are loud. When they don't do what I want. Uh, around here, biggest thing I find myself complaining about is the traffic. Right? Why do people insist on driving 20 miles below the speed limit in this town? I don't know. Right? And I've lived here for years. I've never seen that in any other town. People are just in no hurry to get anywhere and it drives me insane, and it makes me angry, and I grumble about it. Maybe you grumble about uh, your roommates who won't clean up. You grumble about your professors who give you too much work. You complain, you dialogue, you argue. All of these things demonstrate a heart that lacks gratitude. So he says, you want to work out your salvation, it begins in here. It begins by daily reminding yourself of all that God has given you in Jesus Christ and done for you. And then I don't have to seize my rights. I don't have to argue with others. I don't have to complain when things aren't going my way. I'll never forget, I had this professor in seminary one day. He walked in and he began to talk about how his wife had just gotten out of the hospital. And she had had to have some tests run and had to have a surgery. And it had cost him $5,000 dollars, which for a seminary professor is a lot of money. Those guys don't make just a whole lot of money. But I remember him saying, I wrote that check. And as I wrote that check, I thanked God that I had the money to write that check, even though it drained a savings account. And I thought, that's the kind of gratitude that I want to have. God, you've given me more than I need. Even if all I have is a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, I have eternal riches. And I want to reflect the gratitude and the love of Jesus Christ through not arguing and complaining, through thinking of his values above my own. So then Paul goes into the results. You've got a command, work out your salvation, application, don't grumble or argue. And then the results... First of all, a witness to the world, verses 15 and 16, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. Here's what he's saying. When we choose unity and gratitude over arguing and complaining then we can shine a light to the world around us so that they see Jesus. We hold out what he calls the word of life, which is the gospel, that there is a God who died for you and rose again so that you can have life. And I am living proof of that. And so I rejoice and I'm grateful. And I want to share that life with you. On the other hand, when we are disunified and we grumble and we argue and we seize our rights, it communicates just the opposite. I ran across an article about a year ago, and I, I've saved this thinking I might use it someday. Uh, the title, the headline is, Women's Bible Study Ends with Bloody Nose and Arrest. It says, what witnesses say started out with Bible study, took a strange turn before ending with the arrest of a 39-year-old Panama City Beach woman. There are two versions of what happened. Deputies say that Heidi Rhodes was nearly too drunk to tell her version, and that it was vague and didn't match what the other three witnesses told them. Deputies arrived to a call for help to find two women in a physical fight inside a home on Loreno Place in the Laguna Beach area. After breaking up the fight, two deputies separated the women to hear both sides of the story. Rhodes said that the other woman attacked her because she'd called her boyfriend earlier and told him that his dog was roaming the neighborhood. The other version of the story does not paint Rhodes as the victim, but rather as the aggressor. According to that version, Rhodes was sitting in the living room of the home with the three other women after Bible study when she pulled out a marijuana cigarette and started to light it. The resident told Rhodes not to smoke in her home and that she should leave. The witnesses say that sparked an argument and Rhodes hit the other woman in the face. Deputies noted that the other woman did, in fact, have a bloody nose. As the women tried to call the police, the fight spilled into the kitchen, which is where the two women were when deputies arrived. Aside from the victim's bloody nose, Rhodes had a small bruise on her forehead where she said the other woman had punched her and some blood coming from an ear piercing where Rhodes said the other woman pulled her earring. Great Bible study, right? I mean, what a testimony of love and unity in the body of Christ. What does that say? We do things like that. It says we've absolutely failed to grasp in a practical way the love of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Now, hopefully you've never had an incident quite that extreme in one of your Bible studies. But maybe you've experienced a conflict and a rift in a relationship because of gossip. Maybe because two guys like the same girl. Maybe because there's some dispute between roommates, you can't get along, and no one's willing to ask forgiveness and set aside their rights. And what that does is it communicates that We're not willing to allow the love of Christ to unify us. So we're going to argue, we're going to grumble, we're going to complain, we're going to insist upon our rights. On the other hand, he says if we are unified, if we are grateful, if we seek to work out our salvation and remember what Jesus has done on our behalf, uh, we will shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I love that phrase. We'll shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. They lived in a crooked and perverse generation. So do we. A world that doesn't acknowledge God, that doesn't seek him. And when they see true love reflected among God's people, that shines. I grew up in Dallas where there weren't a whole lot of stars in the sky most of the time. And so passages like this never really made a lot of sense to me growing up. When I would read about God telling Abraham to count the stars and that's how many descendants he would have, I'd go outside and go, Right? Something like that. I, there weren't a whole lot of stars around, but uh, as I've grown and I've been in other areas, I know that there are places where there are just thousands of stars. A couple of years ago, I went out to McDonald Observatory in West Texas in Fort Davis with my brothers and my dad, and it's one of the darkest uh, locations actually in the continental United States, and there's this observatory, and you stand outside in the dark, and there are just seemingly millions of stars that light the sky. Some of you who grew up in rural settings know what I'm talking about. You can chart your way by those stars. They provide a lot Light that allows you to go where you need to go. It allows you to see. And that's what Paul is saying. If you want to provide a light that will allow the world to know and see Jesus Christ, here's how you do it. You work out your salvation. You come to know Jesus well. Invest your life in his word. Invest your life in proclaiming him. And then you unify as a church for that task and demonstrate a love that the world could never find. And you will shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And Paul says, uh, that way I will know that my work has not been in vain. That you got it. That Jesus died for you. That Jesus rose again. And you're called to imitate that humility, that grace, and that love. So it provides a witness to the world and then... It also provides joy, genuine, transformative joy. Verses 17 to 18, Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In other words, this choice to to allow God to work through you, to seek him and rely on his spirit as you pursue him, the choice to do that, will produce in you a joy that goes even beyond circumstances. Remember, as Paul's writing this letter, he's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He has the belief that he'll live and get out, but he doesn't know for sure. And you know what he says? He says, if you will do this, church, if you will gather together in unity and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, even if... My life is poured out, as he says, as a drink offering upon the sacrificial service of your faith. The idea is that they are serving with their lives. They're giving their lives as an offering to Jesus Christ. Paul says, my little part is just like a little drink offering, like a little cup of water or wine that I pour out on top of your faith. I add a little bit to it. Even if that's what my life is, I rejoice. I rejoice because I'll have done the work God's called me to do and I'll share my joy with all of you. And he says, I call you to rejoice. Share your joy with me. If you want to know what life-altering joy is like, apart from circumstances, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're in pain or not, whether you have trials or not, life-altering joy is knowing and living as if I've been given eternity and the things of God in Christ Jesus, things that can never be taken away things that can never be destroyed, a relationship with him that will last forever. And I've been given the opportunity then to proclaim that. That is joy. Paul says, you want to know that joy, then serve him. Dedicate your life to knowing him and allowing the spirit of God to transform and shape you into the image of Jesus Christ. So the question then as we close is this, what practically speaking do you need to do to work out your salvation? What are the steps you may need to take? It may be very simple. It may be for you this morning, you don't yet know him or have a relationship with him. And it may be the first thing is that you need to recognize and believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose again so you can have eternal life, so you can know him and spend an eternity with him. If you know him, Maybe that God is calling you to invest some time understanding him through his word. Maybe he's calling you to invest some time in prayer. Maybe that he's calling you to really engage with a community of believers who can help you in those tasks so you're not trying to do it alone. It may mean joining a small group. That may mean getting into some kind of a group where they will hold you accountable and push you to know Jesus better. What is it that you need to do to take the next step to begin to work out your salvation so the world will see Jesus Christ lived out in your life? Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful so much for your word, how it convicts us, how it changes us. And we thank you for your spirit who lives in us and transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray we would depend upon him. And know that in our own strength, apart from you, we can do nothing. And yet you've also given us a responsibility to pursue you. And I pray we would be faithful to that responsibility. And even though we don't understand all of your ways, I pray we would submit to them. And God, above everything else, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he's done for us. On our behalf, so we can know you. So we can be here this morning. Having life and the hope of eternity. Father, we praise you, and we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful week.